Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, and welcome to the American Age Podcast. I'm talking with Seth Rodney today. Seth, how are you doing? Uh, not too bad. So I know it's a three-hour time difference. I don't know, and I don't think our listeners know this, or I don't know why they would, but I'm on the West Coast, and Seth is on the East Coast, and so it's always a little bit of a logistical complication to get together and figure out how we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. But uh, So it's it's a little later for him than it is for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'm fine with that. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure everyone appreciates that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so today's topic uh, was uh, suggested by uh, Seth, and uh, he had uh, f- uh, found, or how did you come across the tweets, Seth? He just showed up on my feet. He just showed up on my feet. Okay. A guy named David Roberts who goes by at Dr. Vox. Um, does he does he write for Vox? Do you know if he writes about some of the stuff? I think so. I think I checked out his his uh, profile, and I believe that he writes on climate change and associated technologies. Okay, well, this guy's got like you know he's got like sixteen thousand followers and uh, or sixteen thousand likes, like eighty thousand followers. Yes, and, yeah. You know, we have like we we've got like nineteen. So, right. um, it's a good he's a good person to uh, engage with. You know, you should always try and punch above your weight class, as mm-hmm. they say. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, so I actually have the tweet. He, he, he there are a series of eighteen, twenty, nineteen tweets 20 uh, which 20 which essentially amounts to a little mini essay which mm-hmm. i was seth and i were talking before the, the broadcast and i was saying that uh he really kind of blew my mind with what you could accomplish with tweets so mm-hmm. uh because he essentially puts together a little essay mm-hmm. um so seth do you want to kind of summarize uh what his argument is or do you would you like to actually pull a couple of of the most uh, poignant uh, tweets uh, into the conversation. Yeah, that's what I'll do. Uh, okay. The the ones that really struck me. Well, I was kind of I was struck by the the first in the in the threaded series. There's a there's a thread of twenty, and the first one in the first one he says, "All right, this controversy over conservative calmness in um, the New York Times opinion page essentially is bugging me. Everyone is dancing around the central point." And in parentheses, the same central point everyone dances around in numerous contemporary controversies. So I'm going to lay it out. And then what he does is he says, basically, here's the case for what conservatism in America has become. And here's why the New York Times feels that it has to intellectually come to grips with that. Um, And here's how they fail to do that. And here's why. So the main point is, and this is the second tweet, the contemporary right wing in the U.S. has become, in Lionel Trilling's immortal words, a bundle of, quote, irritable mental gestures which seek to resemble ideas, unquote. And he summarizes that. Great quotation, by the way. Yeah. He summarizes that further by saying, it's just a tangle of resentments and bigotries driven by the erosion of white privilege. Right. So he says, goes on from there and says, this has always been a part of it of conservatism in the, in the U.S., but you had this class of D.C. conservatives. And, I, and here I can think of a lot of this, the talking heads that used to show up on morning, Sunday morning shows. You know, people like David Brooks, people like um, Will, um, who's the patrician one that writes for the, used to write for the Post, Will, Will, um, oh. I'm not sure, actually. George Will. 
Oh, George, I, George, is George Will on the New York Times opinion page? Now? No, 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 no. He was oh, in Washington Post. You mean Post. his talk? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. So anyway, he says there's always been this uh, element in conservatism, but the D.C. conservatives would code switch. They spoke this very serious language of ideas and policies, right? Uh, but Trump has shown that the purported principles of conservative ideology mean virtually nothing to the conservative masses. Because he swerved this way and that. He's done, he said this and said that. Um, taxes, immigration, healthcare, guns, it doesn't matter. The base follows him, whether he's going into the deep, dark ditches of, of, uh, suggesting that they can do away with due process when it comes to seizing people's guns, which he right. said publicly the other day, um, to, you know, arbitrarily, um, uh, 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 suggesting that um, that because um, a judge is Mexican, that he can possibly treat a case before him fairly. Coriel, right? Right right, 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 right. So David Roberts goes on to say, the New York Times opinion pages faces a dilemma. It wants to expose its readers to the perspectives of true conservatives. However. The problem with that is that if they did, what they would end up, and he says this, it, he says, quote, it would print a bunch of paranoid, box-generated fairy tales and belligerent expressions of xenophobia, misogyny, racism, and proud anti-intellectual ignorance. So what it has to do is recruit people uh, who, who basically give you conservatism light. People mm -hmm. like David Brooks, Gershon, Douthat, Stevens. Um, he says they have little or, or little voice or influence inside actual conservatism. And in fact, they're all there. A lot of them are anti. Uh, they're all they're all anti-Trump. They are anomalies, idiosyncrasies, not representative of anything broader. And so, what do the mainstream quote-unquote voices of conservative conservatism have left? One half-assed whataboutism. Sure, quote, sure, Trump and the GOP are terrible. What about, what about at that time that person on the left said that one bad thing? Um, and he says that this goes, that, that this explains why people are now obsessed with Farrakhan and why people are now obsessed with campus speech intolerance. It's not much, he says, but it's all they have left. There's nowhere left to go intellectually. So Stevens and the others are playing this old parlor game where quote-unquote serious conservatives tell liberals that they are bad and wrong, and liberals proceed to engage in self-loathing and hang-wringing about it. And I just think that that's the gist of his argument, and I just think that that is one of the most insightful things I have read this year, and it may be one of the most insightful critiques of our current, um, the state of our current politics and how those politics get sort of threaded through our mainstream, um, I, hate, I don't like that word, our legacy, our legacy media, right? Um, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, no, 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 please finish your point. And then, and then well, I, I think I was done. I mean, I, I just want to say that it was compelling to me because it diagnosed these sort of, the, the way I generally think about conservatism in the U.S., and I think that there, there are lots of people who would have very strenuous objections to being to it being characterized in this way? Essentially, a, 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 a bunch of um, 
a bunch of resentments that that pertain most deeply to race. So um, I, um, when you first proposed a topic, I had said that the, you know I, I agreed with a a portion of it, but disagreed with a, a significant chunk of that, and some some of it's shifted in where I agree and disagree. Okay, um, but. Rather than taking on the the argument as a whole mm-hmm. from the beginning, I I, I kind of want to, I think I want to poke at some of its underlying assumptions. Okay. So it, to me, he is uh, claiming a coherency that he is also at the same time trying to undermine mm. um, by by claiming that conservatives who are putting forth a coherent articulation of what it means to be conservative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think you're going to get some divergencies in the in the New York Times opinion page even about that. But let's just kind of paint it with one broad brush because I think there's probably some validity to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, that what is propelling the popularity of Trump amongst Republican voters Mm -hmm. is motivated by a single thing, which is the erosion of white privilege. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't, I I, I don't buy that interpretation because Mm -hmm. it's too, it's too flat. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of, part of my issue with, all of this sort of shouting back and forth, like, you know, just come clean, it's racism, you know, mm-hmm. just come clean, it's this, just come clean, it's that, mm-hmm. um, is the the main, what I see is the primary, not that, okay, that's ridiculous, not the primary problem. One of the most significant problems right now with public discourse in the United States is it is not up to the task of the complexity of 21st century America. Hmm. And I don't think that David Roberts is helpfully contributing to that, um, to attacking that problem. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're talking about, you know, a pro- so the NRA, for example, you know, the, um, uh, when they do these, uh, I have a hunting license, you know, because my dad grew up, uh, you know, grew up in Arkansas. And, I had and so no I idea you had a hunting license. I do, yes. So uh, I, uh, Jesus my Christ, dad that makes me hunt- think differently about you. <laughs> <laughs> so it really should not. Though, <laughs> but, but it does. I mean, but, and here your, we are. <laughs> wait, wait. Is, is your ass vegetarian? I'm sorry. Did you become vegetarian recently? And I didn't, and I didn't know? <laughs> I'm sorry. I missed, I missed the memo. Funny. You should That's have let funny. me know. That's funny. So, I, you know, I have, I have a hunting license. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that was talked about in this hunting class was that, you know, your responsibility for, you know, engaging in, in the act of hunting and being, uh, you know, being a gun owner, et cetera, is that not to turn the 60% against us. Hmm. And what the person meant by that was um, you've got basically 20% of people that actually uh, are just totally and completely opposed uh, to gun ownership, gun rights, you know, see it as a cancer on society. Mm -hmm. And then you've got 20% of people that are, are 
complete nut jobs about gun. You know, they want to have like one AR-15 for every appendage or something mm-hmm, like mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And, and and back research that'll allow you to shoot machine guns with your toes and mm-hmm, things like that. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. so and then there's the sixty percent of the country that you know are just fine. They just are kind of going about their lives and doing mm-hmm. whatever they're doing. And if mm-hmm. you want to go hunting, you want to go hunting. That's fine. Mm-hmm. And this resonated with me when I was recently. I put the, we put a tweet out about this um, at the at the AAAS, which is the American Academy uh, for the Advancement of Science, and uh, they did a they held a poster session on what to do about the spread of misinformation, uh, you know, fake news, and mm-hmm. alternative facts, and all mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. and. One of their strategies, one of their top strategies was, completely independent of this, to appeal to the 60%. So appeal to the 60% that are not nut jobs. One in five, you can find one in five Americans to literally believe anything. One in five Americans believe in fucking angels, right? Like literally, like they have a pet angel that's right. like on their shoulder telling right. them to go do shit. Right. So so that that number, 20%. Of of people, one in five that believe some crazy stuff, and I don't mean they they're, they're one in five they believe in crazy stuff and therefore they do crazy things, but they believe in some you know like hooey, right? right? right. Some kind of some whatever kind of right. mysterious uh, you know nefarious force in the universe. Mm-hmm. So I, in Robert's assessment of what the entire right wing base mm-hmm. in this country is, mm-hmm. I just. I don't buy it. I, mm-hmm. I don't I don't think I, do I think that there is a significant minority mm-hmm. that is filled with racial paranoia and that motivates their actions? Yes. Do I think that there is maybe a majority that are filled with racial anxiety? Yes. Do I think that those two things intermingle together in a dangerous way when you have a demagogue in power? Absolutely. Is the way to combat that to say all of you all who are sympathetic to this demagogue are nuts? No, what that does is that pushes more and more people in the 60 to the fringes and the mm-hmm. extreme. Mm-hmm. But so, I, oh, go ahead, please jump in. Well, <clears throat> there's several things I want to say. One is that he's not saying that they're all nut jobs, he's saying that there are a, tang- a bundle of Irritable mental gestures which seek to resemble ideas. A tangle of resentments and bigotries driven by the erosion of white privilege. So I just let me let me just let me just flesh this out a little bit because I think there is something to your argument, but I'm, I'm I actually do want to stick to mine, and here's why: there are lots of conceptions for what the U.S is and what it constitutes. But one of the key ones, one of the ones that's probably shared the most widely is that it is a bastion of democracy. It is the place where, and, and, this is, and this is very much true for immigrants, right? This is the place where you can come and reinvent yourself, as you can be anybody you want to be. And right. part of that, that, that narrative, that, that ideology is based on it was based on a, on a certain kind of economy, a booming economy, basically post-war. It's, 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 it's mostly been, been going up and up and up. Um, not, just, also- not just post-war. I mean, that's, I mean, that's manifest destiny. I mean, I'm saying that the booming economy has been tied to 
uh, violence and the aftermath of violence for no, 200 plus years. No, that's right. No, thank you for, for, for clarifying that. That, that is actually more, more correct than what I was saying. But, but here's the thing. Part of it is also based on inequality. Like fundamentally, the, like whether we're talking the economic system, and it's clear that that, that economic system has been about taking advantage of a particular class of people, oftentimes a racialized class. And this is how we got to the point where it, we did have a booming economy where um, slave labor was exploited or indentured servitude was exploited in order to um, uh, uh, build up the kind of capital by which America could become a superpower. But let's, let's even put the economic argument aside because I'm actually more concerned with the other one, which is the rhetorical uh, uh, constitution of this of this of this the, the shining republic right part of that rhetoric has always been about has been based on the notion that you are equal in the side in the eyes of the market you are equal in the eyes of the law you are equal 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 all down the board and we did not have a true democracy in this country until 1964 1968 with the passage right. of the Voting Rights Act in 64 and Fair Housing Act in 68, Civil Rights Act in, what was it, 63, um, we did right. not have it. So this, this entire kind of structure is built on this rhetoric of equality, which we have not, and, and here's the thing, even when we had kind of procedural equality on the books, finally in 1968, for, for most for most of civic life, right? For most of public life. We still have been fighting this rear guard action, trying to chip away at it, trying to make it difficult for people of color to actually be equal in the ways that we've We've, and we've, that's and that's ongoing. And, and right. sixty four was the Civil Rights Act, by the way. I just Googled it. Okay, thank you. So, right. yeah. so 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 my argument is that he's right to an extent in that conservatism, which is essentially sought to preserve a kind of status quo that uh, uh, has a, has, um, uh, a, a sort of general picture of um, this is U.S. society that is, I mean, let's just put the economics aside for a moment, but is essentially a place where "Quote unquote Christian values, right? That are held by um, uh, evangelicals and generally Protestant evangelicals um, hold sway. So, uh, um, okay. So, so, can I jump in, or are yes, you... please, no, please do. Okay. So, yeah. So, um, I, I. I want to start somewhere, but I don't want to. I don't want to finish with that point. This is not my point. This is just the starting off point. Okay. So, uh, yes, all of those things that you are saying are absolutely correct. Um, and the effort to disenfranchise people based on race is ongoing and vigorous. Um, and that has not a. It, it's maybe a. a I was about to say it has not abated. Uh, it has, of course, abated. It's not. It's not as uh, on full display as it has been Precisely. historically. Precisely. Um, and and I'm not offering this up as exceptionalism. I am offering this up as context in order to to push the conversation somewhere. Which is that 
And in the history of the world, mm. in our 5,000-year history mm -hmm. of starting to make cities and live in them and wage war and unify, mm -hmm. what has our record of liberty and equality and fraternity looked like? Terrible. Fair Awful. Enough. Fair enough. Just, just abysmal. Right. And is the United States an exception to that history? In some, in its rhetoric, yes. yes. In its in its practice, no. it has failed miserably, miserably, miserably okay. to live up to that. In that hypocrisy grates on me. Right. Um, I I I don't use this word very often, but I abhor it. Mm -hmm. I abhor our inability to stay true to our rhetorical uh, and principled roots right. in the Declaration of Independence and, the, and in the Constitution. Right. And I do not think that David Roberts is contributing to the work that needs to be done mm -hmm. to real – because all of the – this is – and this is what it comes down to. All of the easy battles have been, have been fought and won. They've been fought and won. Like – it's the easy ones. I'm not. I'm not talking. I'm not saying all the battles. I'm not saying there's equality amongst the races. I'm not saying that yeah, yeah. Uh, misogyny is not alive and well. I'm not, right. not saying that. But, but the easy ones, like you know, the big bullseye targets that you could just have unfettered indignation, direct unfettered indignation at, they're gone. Like what's left are internecine, messy, difficult, ugly little problems that can only be fought in a sort of intellectually guerrilla way. Like mm -hmm. you have to – like it's it's guerrilla warfare mm -hmm. for intellectuals or it should be. Mm -hmm. And so – or that, that would be my argument, that it should be that. And that – I mean how does, how does David Roberts – you know, if he was here, we could ask him. How does he explain – the shift in voting between 2008 and 2016. Mm -hmm. You have a significant number of voters that voted for Obama and voted for Trump. Right. Now, that's kind of madness in my world. Right. Like, I don't, right. I don't, I just don't even, I, I don't, e I can't even articulate how far apart those things are. But, but yet, Somewhere they meet because there were voters that did that. So somewhere my understanding falls down because it happened. And yes, Roberts can paint a story that like, oh, you know, I mean, I myself have, have proffered the story of the magic Negro, right? So here comes Obama. He's going to fix everyone's problems. And so this is what motivated those voters, right? But that's again, come on, that's too easy. Okay. I, I don't. Okay, so I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. I, I, but I do have an answer to that. And, and actually, uh, what tripped me into remembering this, um, which was a key part of his argument, which I left out actually, mm. was what mm -hmm. you what you said about the magic Negro. Um, oh, it's, it's yeah, magic Negro, magical. Um, is that uh, he he mentions this um, this notion of Yes, the noble savage mm, fantasy, mm -hmm. right? Which mm -hmm. is that people in the heartland are somehow more um, 
more genuine, more authentic, and they have these small town virtues that are, you know, de deserve defending. Um, and cons both conservatives, he's, he argues, both conservatives and liberals want to hold on to that. And that is another key part of conservatism, which you're right, he did leave out of his, his sort of initial, um, 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 uh, what's the word, um, sort of uh, blistering attack on conservatism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, there is that part of conservatism, which is essentially rural versus the city, right? Like it's... So urban, it, sure, it, yeah. Right, mm -hmm. right. It's, it's, this, it's this notion that, and in some ways they, they would, I think this is part of conservatism, even though I don't think conservatives would cop to this. They, they do hold on to this um, uh, notion of it taking a village to raise a child. They mm -hmm, really do mm -hmm. believe in a kind of a, a kind of core sense of community, but I think mm -hmm. sort of supporting that is this notion of the sort of noble white settler savage, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so here's my problem with that: that he may not come. I don't know whether he had an adequate explanation for what happened with um, how votes, how voting patterns switched in the last election. But I imagine he would say something like, you still have these constituencies, these very separate constituencies that can meet in a, in a candidate like Trump. So you still have the D.C. conservatives who are very sort of high-minded and, 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 and at least espouse you know, certain kinds of economic um, um, principles, generally, um, that, are, that mm -hmm. are conservative. And then you, mm -hmm. and then you still have, uh, and then you do have those... Um, um, small town, um, rural folks who um, see themselves as like composing or comprising the heartland of America. And um, they very much uh, see themselves as disappearing from the, from the public conversation on our promise, right? Like, and, and, and we talked about this months ago, how the one group that you are now allowed to publicly um, just crap all over um, are straight white men and, and small town white people. Like when women get thrown in there too. Like you can just, you can pretty much do that all day. Like if they're poor and you're redneck, like you're, you're fodder for everybody. Absolutely. Everybody's yeah, jokes. Right. Cult culturally, culturally. Yeah, culturally, right. Yeah. So, so I do think that there are, I think he has simplified, over, perhaps oversimplified some things, but I do think there are these, these, particular constituencies within the broad umbrella of conservatism that for me still at the end of the day are in some ways, maybe not primarily, but in some ways are driven by racial anxiety or resentment. So I'm, so I think you and I are basically so probably a slightly less interesting conversation because I think you and I are basically in complete agreement about that. Like I do like what Roberts is tapping into and what you just articulated. Mm -hmm. I I do agree that the unraveling of whiteness, what we'll just call whiteness, right? Mm -hmm. So whiteness being kind of the umbrella term for what it meant for much of American history to be white, which was free, self-determined, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and and capable of bending the world to one's will mm. Um, mm. or failing to do so and, 
and reaping the the consequences of that. So mm-hmm. that that picture of whiteness has begun to to come on. I mean, it was frayed from the very beginning. There were founding fathers that knew this was madness. But uh, even Jefferson, in with all of his bullshit, knew it was also madness. He has that he has a line about like holding a wolf by the ears and mm. and notes on the establishment of a government in Virginia or something like that. He talks about how slavery is essentially having a wolf by the ears and that you can't let it go because the wolf will tear you apart. Mm. Um, um, you know, which is also just like some bullshit justification for like selling his kids into slavery right. and shit like that. So I mean, but 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 but, but, but whatever. So like that that idea was frayed from the very beginning, but it, it it it's fraying, accelerated, and at least culturally, not not economically, um, maybe not even interpersonally, culturally has become. Uh, untenable, right? You can't reconstitute that version of whiteness anymore. Well, not but, not at least at least not not publicly and not not and yeah, not yeah, be yeah. taken I, seriously I, because the alt right yeah. is doing precisely that, right? They're, they're yes. trying to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And uh, yeah, so I don't mean it's gone. Right. I just mean that it's unapologetic defense or it's it's reflexive. Um, defense is untenable currently, even though it still, you know, lives on in a variety of forms. Right. And and by the way, but, just to, to, just so we can just quickly prove that with an anecdote, and this this struck me was that remember when when um, the Orange Menace said um, on camera that there were good people on both sides of the mm, issue, and uh, and and yeah. you know, it's, it's a sort of exhaustive sort of um, um, line of stupidity because. There aren't both sides. There's several sides, but whatever. Um, mm-hmm. he, he's essentially talking about Antifa uh, uh, versus the uh, the um, the white supremacist marchers, and the people on his economic councils started to run like rats in the ship, right? Yeah. Like, and these guys. I mean, you would, you would, you would imagine oh, these are you know, not these are not social justice warriors, right? Exactly, are, right? They're, they're just the beholden to right. their shareholders, like. But it's, right. it That's looks right. so bad. Yeah. For that, for a for the sitting president to publicly defend white supremacists, that they were like, um, right. I'm out, I'm out, dude, I'm out. <laughs> right, right. So you know that, but I see that unraveling of of whiteness mm. um, as plaguing not just white people. Mm. Right. The problem is that it's it's also morphed into a kind of unself conscious righteousness amongst people that have the right opinions that 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 are wearing the right intellectual clothing to uh fit in at the dinner parties and the cocktail parties and the seminar classrooms in uh in colleges and and by that I, by that I mean that not everyone that is voicing the right opinion about what it means to be uh, black in America today and the history of that oppression and the ways in which institutional racism are alive and well, mm-hmm. I would go so far as to say the majority of people that articulate that opinion have not actually done the intellectual work. Mm 
to arrive at that opinion. This is a f- this is a mode. It's mm-hmm. a fashion. Well, it's also and, as a package, right? Like you, you, yes. you some kids, and and I know this from talking with people of color, um, particularly in the art scene, because you're right, and to to a great extent, it is very it's fashionable, or rather, no, no, no. Let me let me put it as slightly more accurate um, terms. It's derigueur. It's like of the course mm-hmm. to have these sorts of opinions if you're in certain sections of the uh, certain areas of the art scene. Yes, that is true. And I do, I have to, I have to just admit, like, I do get tired of that. I do get tired of people of color um, starting off the conversation there because <clears throat> partly I want to say to everyone, I want to say to white people as well, but, but also to people of color, you know, we could talk about other things. Like, we actually don't need That's to start right. there. Well, we do have this, other areas of our lives that are really interesting to us. This is what, I mean, this is, was, uh, I mean, this was uh, Malcolm X's uh, frustration back in the 60s. Like, why doesn't someone ask me about the space program? Like, right. I actually, right. I have other interests and opinions right. about the world right. than just race relations. Right. You know, and that was in the 60s. And right. that was Malcolm X. Right. Like, right. it doesn't, it, it you know, it, it, so... I, I feel like so to, to push back at David Roberts, I mean, I, I meant to look up his photo, his little caricature, his little character, like New York street artist mm-hmm. drawing, mm-hmm. pencil drawing. Mm-hmm. He looks kind of like a white dude to me. So, it does. you know, I mean, OK, so which is cool. But the, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with I'm fine with with Roberts. Uh, so I'm going to lay it out. You know, like little colloquialism <laughs> at the beginning. Like, I, oh, you caught that, did you? <laughs> yeah, that's cool, David. I, you know, I, I I understand. Like, you you know, you gotta you gotta take the street cred where you can get it rhetorically. No problem. Well, he's but, he's a white guy. I just looked him up. Okay, and, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. he's a white guy. Yeah. So, which is which? Uh, you know me. I would never box anyone's opinion around mm-hmm. that. But I would like to call maybe a little bullshit because Mm -hmm. just as he is calling out Mm -hmm. um this sort of the the incoherency and the um uh or the um what does he call it uh he said, I feel like he used code switching a little bit in not quite the way that it's typically meant. But how? Um, oh, what? There was one piece of it that, anyway, I can just make my point. I apologize for all the fumbling around, which is just that he is drawing on a set of opinions and poses mm-hmm. in his own. Uh, sort of profession of enlightenment, how he's just going to explain it all. Oh, to, you, so to you mean everyone. when he so, said spoke the very serious language of ideas and policies? Yes. DC conservatives like, yeah, who yeah, code switch? He's, yeah, he's saying, oh, when he plays, when he talks up like the noble savage, like right. their own like sort of noble savage right, myth. Right, 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 right. And, and he is playing into his own myth that of, uh, or it seems to me in this series of tweets, I, I shouldn't paint him with a single brush, right? Because I haven't read his other stuff. So, uh, um, and he's clearly very uh, bright and and on point, and 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 I think there's a number of of uh, of of insightful comments that he makes, and I've probably I've hedged my opinion enough. I think so <laughs> I feel self I feel, so, I feel self conscious, yeah. like uh, you know, being uncritically. Um, critical of of Roberts here, but you can but, drive the truck over him now. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's what you yeah. want to do. So just you know, let's right, go. Right, vroom, right. vroom, let's go. <laughs> so 
to me, <laughs> to me, this reads a little bit like insider resentment. Like, right. no, no conservative white people. This is the way that you are supposed to be white now. Right. Like, I, I don't like this is the way that it's okay to be white to like identify where like all of these covert injustices and even though i agree with i agree with all of uh, sort of the kernel of what would drive that indignation i'm on board with but the smugness of it uh really puts me at odds okay so i i do have a good question i think and it's something that i've been kind of kind of it's been kind of percolating in the back of my mind for a while how do we come to the place where and i think you and i both struggle with this how do we come to the place where we have some clarity on some issues right like what can what constitutes conservatism what constitutes liberalism what constitutes being being really honest with others and honest with yourself, la, la, la. How do you get to that place? And then when you have that conversation with the person who's different, how do you come across, how do you have, a, how do you have that conversation where you look for common ground and not be a little smug? Because I, I, honestly, I struggle with that. Yeah. Like, like, think about my students. Like, and I think I told you this anecdote. I may have told somebody else. I think I told Caroline this, but um, I was explaining to my student. I teach a research and methodologies class at Parsons mm -hmm. uh, in the new school currently, and I was attempting. And it was late in the in in, in the class time. We were we were um, close to um, in the time when we needed to leave. And I was trying to explain my expectations for what they would pick up from the course. And I said something about these critical skills that would allow you to sift evidence and determine whether the evidence you found was relevant to the question you were posing and mm -hmm. whether it constituted evidence that was that could be corroborated, right? That could be, that could be, um, that other researchers following you could follow, right? And could replicate or could find again and could find and reach similar conclusions, right? And someone at the end of class said, right after I'd kind of given this very quite heartfelt spiel about how important it is to have, to, to, to get these skills. She said something like, Oh, what she'd ask is that, um, because I talked about Derrida and his um, idea of the supplement, uh, and I talked about how I'd used that idea in a piece of art criticism I'd written for Hyperallergic, and uh, someone asked, I think it was, I think it was um, my student Carly, she asked, um, well, why is it that he has, gets like, gets, to have what he does, which is theory, um, why is that taken more seriously than quote unquote conspiracy theorists, right? Because, you know, they're both doing theory, essentially is what she's saying. She didn't say that, but that was the subtext of the question. They're both doing theory, so how come, you know, he's, Derrida is like all, you know, um, valorized and, and, and fetid. And I said, well, part of it is that, part of the reason for that is that he came up through a, 
a, a, a, a system of schooling where he was credentialed um, by an institution that's respected widely. And he went through a process of training by which other people could tell that he was a serious thinker. So that's part of it, right? And I, and I said that, and then she said, oh, so you're saying that basically that people who go through that system like are just better at mind control. <laughs> and I wanted, I was like, Carly, Carly, is that what you heard when I wonderful. said what I just said? That's what you heard. Right. Like, right. I, like what? So, I, I mean, partly knowing that I'm dealing with that kind of mishearing a lot, right? And I'm mm -hmm. also dealing with a deep, deep resentment in some people and resistance to hearing mm -hmm. any other thing that doesn't, hearing anything that doesn't already confirm their worldview that doesn't confirm what they already hold as a world worldview. I must admit, I do get a little smug. I get, a, and, I, and I think it's not smugness because I think I'm so wonderful and brilliant, but smugness because I'm impatient, because I'm tired already. Like I can imagine, I keep it, I have these fantasies of running into someone like uh, Laura Ingraham or something publicly and then having a, a conversation with her. And I just think like, the fr like the, with the first sentence out of the mouth, I would just say, no, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to me to engage so, with you. So I think it, I, I would like to qualify something that you said, uh, which is I, I personally see a difference between a student that is with, I mean this in the flattest way that you can mean this word, ignorant, uh, without judgment. There are plenty of things in the world that I'm ignorant to. Right, and right, about. right, right. Me too. Um, and someone like Laura Ingram, uh, who I do not think is ignorant and I think peddles ideas and is irresponsible with the peddling of those ideas mm. and is intentionally demagoguing and whipping up resentments um, and has a fully articulated, totally bullshit worldview. So yeah, for right. someone like that, you're, you're like right. you're right, I think I think like pull every weapon you have, like level that person to the best of your ability in front of other people, preferably yes. humiliate them. Yes, <laughs> like publicly. So yes, yes, I am all for that level. I mean, at that point, you're talking about like sort of like this is a combat amongst equals, right? And so. Um, not to be overly violent about it, but I subscribe to those. I think those analogies are appropriate in, in contexts like this. And so I think that that uh, is, is completely worthwhile, is, is a completely appropriate response to someone like that. Now, in the cultural sphere, I just to to bring it back to to you know the the issues that that Roberts was talking about, which I I think we're still on pretty clearly. So this uh, you know this did you read about this thing this Bruno Mars uh, controversy? <clears throat> he got uh, criticized by uh, Saren Sensei, I think her name is. Um, there's it's uh, it's on this uh, web uh, series called The Grapevine, and it's you know it's kind of a black American sort of culture show where they, you know, uh, 
uh, sort of work through certain experiences and opinions and stuff like that. Anyway, she she has this thing where she goes off on Bruno Mars um, about how he's a cultural appropriator and like he borrowed like all this stuff from funk and all that. I mean, just and, you know, she is just like full of like verve and self-righteous. I mean, she's just wearing it. Right. It's a, it's wafting off of her. And, you know, it has a little bit of the sort of like black church feel to mm-hmm, it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, be someone in the background just keeps saying facts, facts mm-hmm. over and over again, mm-hmm. you know, which I found incredibly grating and irritating. Right. I, I just I, I, I thought I, yeah. I, I, I mean, mostly because she was just wrong. Right. About and not like Bruno Mars. I don't know Bruno Mars, but about I mean. Just just for starters, and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna qualify this. Her name is Saren Sensei, and the Sensei is spelled the way that Sensei is spelled in the anglicized version of the Japanese word. Oh, so no. I and I and I was curious, so I like Googled around. Is like this an African name? Also, right. I didn't find anything. So right. may I'm you know, a lot of cultures in Africa. So you know, I maybe there's some that 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 is a, a Sensei as an S E N S E I. Right, that's the way it's supposed yeah. to be spelled, right? Yes, it is. But she is not Japanese, a teacher, right? And she's not a teacher. Yes, <laughs> right. yes. so that—that's that, fine. That right. that she feels, and and I could be, I could be ignorant of right. the culture that she comes from, and that that is a an authentic, quote unquote, authentic. Even though I don't actually believe in that, that's why I put quote unquote authentic okay. in air quotes for right. no one that can see except right. you. Right. Um, so she feels comfortable appropriating whatever culture she needs to appropriate in order right. to forge her identity. Right. This is this is whiteness, right. right? This is whiteness that is being worn by a black woman in America. I agree with and that. And that is the idea that you by virtue of who you are and mm-hmm. your history mm-hmm. and and your purported sort of metaphysical position in the social universe mm-hmm. get access to opinions and ideas Mm -hmm. that other people should not have access to. Right. That's whiteness. And, and, and it has, and, and I think Roberts is in a way drawing on that as well. Mm -hmm. When he, when he out of hand dismisses Mm -hmm. the, the efforts and the histories Mm -hmm. of these men and women that are doing their absolute most mm-hmm. to articulate what is a terrible and frightening moment in, in American history, mm-hmm. right? And this is one of the, I told you I was going to try and be at the start a little bit more vulnerable about. Mm-hmm. I every day worry that I am too tepid in my response in in private conversation with friends and family and in the beginning of my public work in response to the Trump presidency. Like, I worry that I am being accommodationist Mm. because everything about him and what he stands for is repugnant to Mm. me. Mm -hmm. I mean, like literally physically repugnant, like Mm -hmm. he turns Mm -hmm. my stomach. Mm -hmm. And I have not felt that way about other politicians and leaders, for the most part, even the ones that I disagree with strongly. And so I worry, though, like in Robert, and this is where I think like, oh, well, Roberts kind of has a point. Like, am I pasting over what something that should not be complicated? Right. Am am I am I doing the work of the very people Mm. that I disdain? 
That's a, um, that's a good question. And, and maybe we can pick this up next time because I think that it's a conversation that we're, is worth carrying on. But I want to I want to leave us with a question too. And that's please, a, that's a please. great question. But the question I want to, I want to ask, um, and I, and I really mean to ask this of everyone who I do think is a genuine conservative. And by that, like people like Jennifer Rubin, who has the right mm-hmm. turn column in, in, Was- in the Washington Post, who mm-hmm. espouses views I really, I, I, I fundamentally disagree with. But at her core, she is principled. And I can mm-hmm. tell this by the way that she's responded to the Trump presidency. I want to ask people like her, honestly, at the end of the day, how is it going to be possible for us to live together? Is it possible for us to weave a kind of police system, legal system, economic system, where neither of us is, feels like we're being taken advantage of by the other? Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, ultimately, that's ultimately, and this is what makes my... What makes me really, I think, more uh, sympathetic to what Roberts has, has articulated in his thread, ultimately, I feel like conservatives don't care. They don't want to compromise. What they want, mm-hmm. honestly, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I feel like majority of them, and I may be wrong about this, and I'm really mm-hmm. open to me being wrong about this, I feel like most of them just want me to be in shackles. They just, they just prefer mm-hmm. me to be some indentured servant or slave Never, mm-hmm. sp- never speaking until spoken to, because mm-hmm. I, I, I honestly don't think that they want they want to figure out a way to live together. That and and maybe we should just you know start another conversation. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. The, the only thing I would is quickly add to that is I don't I don't know that I disagree except that I think with people that have strongly conservative worldviews, they don't care if you are in shackles, but they believe that there is a class of human that that is the best that they can aspire to. Mm, uh, God and, damn. Um, so I think that, I think they're racially agnostic in the 21st century. God. I think they'll take, I think they'll take the yes masses from anyone. Wow. So, yeah. Well, um, yeah. Um, Another so, night. Uh, yeah. 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 Seth, great, uh, great talking to you. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks everyone for listening. Yes. Thank you. And good night. Good night.